God wants His people to hear His voice and then follow Him. God knows what we need, and He gives us exactly what we need when we need it. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Uh, fellow students, if you would open to 1 Kings 19, 1 Kings 19, as you know, we've been in a, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Kings for a month or two, and we'll be here, Lord willing, a few more months. Uh, last week, we saw uh, literally the mountaintop experience where God demonstrated his power on top of Mount Carmel by sending down a fire from heaven to burn up Elijah's sacrifice, as well as the stone itself. Um, Israel, as you recall, declared their loyalty to Yahweh by shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And um, Elijah slew, as you recall, the 450 prophets of Baal. The Mosaic law commanded that if anybody leads you astray from the worship of God into idol worship, you are to be executed. God took idolatry and still takes idolatry extremely seriously, even though we don't. And after that occurred, Israel repented and evil was eradicated. God sent a heavy rainstorm. And as you recall, the very last verse of chapter 18, God enabled Elijah supernaturally to run 17 miles to Jezreel ahead of Ahab's chariot. And I'm thinking the guy didn't even have Nikes. He was probably running in flip-flops or something, you know, which had to be supernatural right there. So the next day, the very next day, beginning chapter 19, another kind of storm broke. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, the prophets of Baal, that is. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Here's the first principle of today's study. Discouragement and depression can distort our perception of what is true. Discouragement and depression can distort our perception of what is true. So Ahab is in Jezreel, and Elisha is in Jezreel. They both came down from Mount Carmel, 17 miles away, and that night there is this massive rainstorm. And Jezebel probably figures, well, Baal has prevailed, and now there's rain. Well, Ahab, her husband, came in and said, well, it really is the other way around. Yahweh has prevailed, there's rain, and all my prophets are dead. And you might assume, you would hope, that Ahab and Jezebel, having encountered the supernatural power of God, would have repented and turned away from Baal worship. Not so much. People who reject God 
do not reject God because of the evidence. They reject God in spite of the evidence. Because people who love their sin choose to sin despite knowledge and despite personal experience. Think of Lucifer. If anybody had access to God, he was the choir director, the prime minister of heaven. If anybody had exposure to the holiness, the perfections of the creator, it was him. And he chose to sin despite almost unrivaled knowledge as a creature, for sure. Think of Judas, walked with Jesus three and a half years, heard every word he said, saw every miracle he performed, and he yet, for 30 pieces of silver, said, I'm going to betray him. Ahab is another example, Jezebel's one. In spite of knowledge, in spite of experience, in spite of exposure to God himself, chose to sin because they loved their sin more than they love Yahweh, more than they love God, more than they love Jesus Christ. Now, Jezebel has a significant problem at this point. Let's see how she tried to solve it. The nation is turning away from worshiping her Sidonian gods of Baal and Ashtaroth, and they're turning back to the worship of Yahweh. Now, that is a problem for her because that's going to severely reduce her personal power as queen. It also might even put her life at risk. I mean, if 450 prophets of Baal just got slain, slaughtered, executed, and she's the one who imported Baal worship into Israel, she's got to be thinking, I've got to turn this tide or my neck is on the line at that point. Now, what's interesting is she could have very easily had Elijah killed that night. Instead of sending him a message, why not just send a couple soldiers over and take his head off? She's got a problem, though. He was very, very popular at this point, and she didn't want to make a martyr out of him. Because making a martyr out of Elijah at this point in time would strengthen the case for Yahweh, and she now has destroyed the most popular man in Israel at this point. What she needs to do is discredit him. She needs to find a way to stop people from following him. Much better if she could intimidate him into silence or flight, and she succeeded in both. She sent a message and says, you got 24 hours to get out of Dodge, or I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets at that point. And apparently he left immediately. He retreated before a defeated enemy, which is tragic. Fear has displaced faith in his life, and he has forgotten God's promises, and he's forgotten God's power that occurred 24 hours before. And there's no record of all of him praying at all about her threat. He just emotionally reacts and runs. It's been said, the best of men are but men at their best, right? James said Elijah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and most of us can identify with him at this point. See, it is very, very easy if, for us to forget what God has done. When you look at the nation of Israel, all the time the Lord is telling Israel, make a memorial, make a pile of stones, make a pile of rocks to commemorate a victory, to commemorate my deliverance, to commemorate crossing the Jordan, to commemorate the Red Sea crossing, because we forget all that God has done over the decades in our lives. And when we face a problem today, we go, I don't know if God can deal with this one. And he says, remember, remember the decades I've carried you through. I've rescued you. I've saved you. I've sustained you. I've, done, I've been faithful. He says, remember my faithfulness. Elijah forgot all that like that. Mount Carmel, last chapter, was the highest point of his ministry and this chapter is the lowest point of his ministry, and they occurred within 24 hours. 
We, like Elijah, are most often vulnerable from attack after a great victory. The Scottish pastor Andrew Bonar said, quote, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. You know, when you have a mountaintop experience with God, you go to camp or you hear a great speaker, whatever it happens to be, we need to be on our guard as we walk back down the hill into the valley of what? Everyday life. Everyday life in the valley has a way of ambushing all our great intentions to walk closer with Jesus and follow after him, and it tests our resolve to obey God regardless. Satan is always prowling around like, what does it say in James? A roaring lion seeking to devour someone through temptation. Relaxing your guard is the best way to make yourself vulnerable to temptation. And here's the sad truth. We are most often most vulnerable, not at our points of weakness, but at our points of strength. Our points of weakness, we know we need help. We say, oh God, help me, I'm no good at this. Our points of strength, we go, I got this, baby, right? So we don't pray about it. What happens? We get blindsided in our points of strength. The truth of it is, we will battle Satan's temptations until when? The very moment of death. You've heard the old line at the ball game saying, quote, it's not over till it's over. Folks, when you see Jesus face to face, you will not deal with temptation anymore. Until then, you're on a battleground, and Satan will try and tempt you every second until the second you leave here. And that's what happened to Elijah. He came off a great victory, and he got spooked by a defeated enemy. See, Elijah's expectation was that God had demonstrated this great power on Mount Carmel and it would result in national revival. I mean, he was assuming that, of course, having seen God's power, the nation's going to turn back to God, including Ahab and Jezebel. Well, exactly the opposite happened. And his expectations blindsided him. We do that all the time. We expect God to do X, Y, Z, and when God doesn't do what we expect, what do we do? We go, God, didn't you listen to my prayers? I told you what I wanted. I mean, didn't you, didn't you understand that the highest good of all of life is for you to do what I want you to do? And he says, well, you don't understand who's God and who's not, right? Elijah was like Peter. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could do what? Walk on the waves. But it said he took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the waves and he became scared and frightened and he began to sink. And that's the same thing with us. When we run into the circumstances, whether medical, financial, or relational, whatever the circumstances are, if you take your mind off Jesus, take your focus off Jesus, look him at your circumstances, we will look at our circumstances and go, these circumstances are stronger than I am. That is true. But they're not stronger than the Savior who lives inside you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Yesterday, Elijah ran 17 miles from Mount Carmel down to Jezreel. Today, 24 hours later, he's running south to Bathsheba in southern Israel. That's about 80 miles south of Jezreel. He left his servant in Beersheba and wandered another 12 to 15 miles. That's a day's hike in the Negev wilderness. Now, the whole bottom half of Israel is the Negev, and it is desert. I mean, it's like Mojave Desert. It's hot and dry. Elijah is so exhausted, he sits down under a juniper tree, also known as a broom brush, 
and the plant grows about 12 feet high and provides some shade. He is physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually exhausted, and he just wants it all to stop. You ever been that tired? Ever been that exhausted? Ever been that frustrated? You just want it to stop. I want to be done with this hassle, this pain, this temptation, this struggle in my flesh, whatever it happens to be, you want it to be over. He is burned out. For the past three years, he has stood alone. He has been a fugitive from the king and the queen. He has seen his fellow prophets murdered. He has seen Israel reject their God. He has seen the ascendancy of evil spread throughout the culture. And he feels he's the only one there. By the way, people of God are not immune to discouragement and depression. Moses was so discouraged in Numbers 11 when Israel complained about their diet, he said, God, just kill me. Just kill me. I'm done. I can't deal with two million people. Well, most of us can't deal with our own families, let alone two million people, so we kind of get it. Joshua, when they got defeated that Ai, he wanted to quit and he was ready to recross the Jordan and go back. He was so discouraged. Jonah became so angry and depressed that he refused to help the people God sent him to save. Jonah 4. Jeremiah and Job both wanted to die because of the pain level they were in, emotional and physical. So Elijah's first recorded words here is, God, just kill me. Aren't you grateful that God says no to some of our prayer requests? <laughs> just a thought, right? It's fascinating. Elijah was running because he didn't want Jezebel to kill him, and now within 24, 48, probably a week, it takes him to walk 80 miles, five days, he says, God, you kill me. That's interesting. I'm running so I won't be killed, and yet now I want God to kill me. F.B. Meyer once wrote, quote, Let those who long to die leave God to choose the day, else they may miss the horses and chariots of fire. See, we live in a culture that says it's really okay to take your own life, with medical help, of course. And I'm not here to talk about that per se, but your days are numbered by God, Psalm 139. Every single one of them. He has a day when you're supposed to enter this life, and he has a day when you're supposed to leave this life. And as the creator, that's ultimately his prerogative. Yes? It's easy to say that when you're pain-free. When you're in massive chronic pain, that's pretty tough to say. I have a number of friends dealing with that. Elijah views himself as a failure. He views his entire ministry as a failure. He says, quote, I am not better than my fathers. What he's saying is, I have had no more success in turning Israel back from idolatry to the worship of the Lord than any prophet that's gone on before me. Apparently, he thought that he was going to have success. He really did expect that the events on Mount uh, Carmel would lead to national revival, and obviously they didn't, and so he is depressed and feels like a failure. It, what's really comforting is to remember that no matter how desperate our situation is, no matter how painful our situation is, God understands it. God understands it. And I could spend all day just on that topic, but let's just look at one passage, Psalm 103, 13. Just as the Father has compassion on his children, 
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. Hebrews talks about Jesus being a great high priest who understands our sufferings because he himself suffered. I don't know your particular sufferings, what you're dealing with, but I know that Jesus Christ does understand your pain because he himself suffered in all points that we suffer, probably on a magnitude we fail to understand. We see God now doing three things with Elijah, very practical. One, he comforts him. Two, he teaches him. And three, he restores him. Let's take a look at verse 5. Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Here's the principle. God knows what we need, and he gives us exactly what we need when we need it. That's a statement of faith for many of you in this room. God knows what we need, and he gives us exactly what we need when we need it. And I tell you that that's because what Scripture says, not that's because that's the way I always feel. And that's not because of the way you always feel. There are times in your life you're going to doubt this statement. God, I think I know what I need. And by the way, I think I know what I need more than what you know I need. That's not true. Your Father knows what you need 24-7. And He knows what you need today in order to get you ready for what He knows you're going to need six months from now. So Elijah is so afraid of Jezebel, he's probably been traveling day and night. And he's probably had no more than a few naps. He is highly sleep deprived. He's probably not eaten as well. We can obviously infer that. So when he finally feels safely out of a reach, he does what? He sits down and he falls over, falls asleep. In the past, God provided with Elijah how? Sent him ravens, had him drink out of a brook, sent him to a starving widow up in Sidon, provided food for a couple of years there to sustain him. Now God ups the ante. He sends him an angel to prepare him food. And undoubtedly, it was angel food cake, right? Of course. <laughs> Certainly wasn't devil's food cake. You know that, right? Actually, it was fresh, fresh baked bread. I find it utterly interesting that it was on hot coals. And I'm thinking, an angel don't need no hot coals. I mean, you know, there it is. But there's hot coals. So clearly there's a physical manifestation here. Fresh baked bread and water. And he ate, and he immediately falls asleep again. He's exhausted. And he was awakened a second time. God fed him a second time. And it says, miraculously, God enabled him to travel in the strength of those two meals for 40 days and 40 nights. Which is utterly interesting. God sustained Israel for how long in the desert? 40 years with divine heavenly food. He sustains Elijah with divine heavenly food for 40 days and 40 nights. I've looked at that and I thought, I wonder what was in that bread, you know? Obviously, it's supernatural, but it makes you think about that. sure like to have my hands on some of that bread. So, Elijah's depressed, he's discouraged. Now, understand that some depression, maybe much of it, is clinical and organic, and that requires medical intervention. We're not going to talk about that today. But it seems that in this case, Elijah's depression is more situational. And God's initial prescription for Elijah is real simple. Eat, drink, sleep. 
right? Pretty basic stuff. He says, eat. Well, hunger and thirst can distort everything in your life. You've heard of the word hangry? Hungry and angry? If you're hungry and tired, the fruit of the Spirit's probably going to work really hard at getting out of your life because the flesh tends to talk pretty loud when you're hungry, right? You just want to eat. It's a hard time thinking clearly if you haven't eaten properly or regularly. Drink is even more insidious. Elderly people often fail to drink enough fluids because they don't have a sensation of being thirsty. Believe it or not, cognitive function has everything to do with hydration. If you haven't imbibed liquid in eight hours, your cognitive function is going to be impaired. As you get older, it is even far more. So I would, this is just real practical, make sure you drink enough water. Sound like your medical doctor, right? Number three, sleep. Inadequate or poor sleep routinely leads to miscognition. You're not thinking clearly because you're sleep deprived. The brain requires regular sleep. If you miss enough sleep, you'll start to hallucinate. And it also impacts your food cravings. That's why many people crave the wrong kinds of foods, because they're simply not getting enough sleep. So very practically, God said, eat, drink, sleep. Now he's headed down from Mount Sinai. Just to give you a photo op of Mount Sinai, there are literally millions of pictures of Mount Sinai. This is also known as Horeb, the mountain of God, known as Mount Sinai. It's about 200 miles south of Bathsheba. So he's come... 17 miles to Jezreel, 80 miles down to Beersheba. He's come 100 miles so far. He's got another 200 miles to go down to Mount Sinai. If you're walking 15 miles a day, that's about a two-week journey. Now, probably Elijah's still depressed, despondent, he's wandering. He's not making 15 miles a day. It takes him 40 days to get down there, which is interesting. The 40-day journey to Horeb is a direct parallel with Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Mount Sinai is a crucial location in the history of Israel. It was the location where God initially revealed himself to Moses. Remember the burning bush? Moses is pasturing the sheep, and he sees this burning bush that does not burn up. It's at Mount Horeb. On the top of Mount Sinai is where Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights, also without food, taking God's word down, the covenant that he gave to Israel at that point in time. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai. Remember when he asks, he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, no one can see my glory and live, but I'll let you see the backside of my glory, not my face. Many, many people think that the very cave that Elijah is now in, which we're going to come in a couple verses, was that cleft of the rock where Moses viewed a portion of God's glory. So Elijah's going back to the mountain is really him going back to the source, the covenant source of God's relationship with Israel, because this was the mountain where God initiated his covenant, his relationship with the nation of Israel, and says, I want you to be ambassadors and representatives for me on planet Earth. Ultimately, Elijah's going back to Sinai because he needs to hear from God. And I would commend that to you. You know, at the end of the day, you can listen to a lot of speakers, you can read a lot of commentaries, you can study your Bible, you can talk to God's people. At the end of the day, there is no substitute for us hearing from God directly. And most of the time, I would venture to say virtually all the time, you want to hear from God, open His Word. Ask the Holy Spirit, 
teach me what you want me to know today from this passage. And God is faithful. He will speak to you through his written word, and he, you can hear his voice through his word anytime you sit down long enough and be quiet and ask him to teach you. And yet we live in such a noisy culture, we'd rather do almost anything than listen to God. But he's available 24-7. Verse 9. Then Elijah came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord, you can underline that, a very key passage in this man's life, came to him, and God said to him, quote, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here's the principle. God never accepts our excuses for sin, but he welcomes our confession and repentance. God never accepts our excuses for sin, but he welcomes our confession and repentance. Now this word of the Lord, quote, is a very common, but it's a hugely significant phrase. You will see it throughout the prophets. It refers to the will of God being communicated in comprehensible form, usually by word, literally, comprehensible language, to someone who God wants to communicate with. And most often that's a prophet, who he wants to speak for God and tell God's people what God has to say to them. So the word of the Lord refers to the authority of God that humans are to understand and obey. And the word of the Lord, as we know, is in the written word of God. So if you want to know what the word of the Lord is, you have it here, all 66 books of it. And God asks him a very interesting question. He says, Moses, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And we've mentioned in this class multiple times, when God asks you a question, he is not seeking information. He is seeking to reveal truth to you, Right? When God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? He already knew the answer. Elijah was hiding out from Jezebel. The message behind the question was real simple. Elijah, I did not call you here. I called you to minister and serve and remain faithful and stand for me and proclaim my word in Israel to my people. Why are you here? You are AWOL, absent without leave. You have not trusted me, and therefore you have disobeyed me and left the place where I called you to duty. Interesting. Where has God called you to serve? Are you there? If you don't know where he's called you to serve, then I highly recommend that be job one in your life to say, if I'm breathing, God has work for me to do. What is it he's called me to do? And am I about my father's business? My, when, Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he was back in the temple, and Mary and Joseph said, we lost you, where were you? And he said, didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? He was taking care of divine, eternal business, and that's what we're supposed to do as well. So God asks Elijah this question, what does Elijah do? Elijah gives the whole litany of excuses why he's disobedient. He says, Lord, you know I'm loyal, and you know Israel is disloyal. And the truth was, Elijah had been very loyal. He had been very zealous for God's glory. He loved the Lord. He loved Israel. He wanted their broken relationship to be reconciled. He wanted it so badly that he actually prayed against his own people. 
Whew. Romans 11.2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Israel is in sin, and James tells us that Elijah prayed earnestly that God would send a drought. Why? To punish them and discipline them and bring them back to the Lord. This is his own people. You ever prayed that way for your family? That takes courage. Lord, I want my children and grandchildren to be so close to you that I want you to do whatever you need to do in terms of pain or suffering or whatever you deem best to bring them back. And I promise not to interfere when they're struggling with you. I'm not going to get in the way. I'm going to let you and them work it out. How bad do you want their salvation? See, we want them to have a comfortable life, but yet we want them to come to the Lord. Sometimes most of us didn't come to the Lord except we got whacked upside the head. Right? So maybe your kids and my grandkids need to get whacked upside the head too. By the Lord. That's what Elijah's praying for. I'm telling you all this stuff and I'm going, watch over your shoulder, Brad. You know, but once again, do we trust our Father or do we not trust our Father? And is our mind on eternity or is our mind on comfort today? Elijah's thinking is now so distorted by pride, self-pity, and exhaustion. He, he, he's, he's distorting the truth. He says, quote, The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. That's true. Many had. But several thousand of them last month said, what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There was a great revival on the town of Mount Carmel. Besides, the issue is not Israel. The issue is Elijah's obedience, regardless of what Israel is doing. Second distortion. I alone am left. Now, this is pity party, you know. It's only me. It's all about me. And I'm the only faithful one. And all these... I mean, this guy could have done on social media. This could work well, right? Now, he is lonely. He's been working solo for three years. But the notion that I'm the only one left in Israel that's faithful to you is not true. It wasn't that long ago that Obadiah told him what? I've hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in caves and fed them. They're still alive. You are not the only one left. And his final excuse is implied but not stated. Jezebel would have surely killed me unless I had come here. And obviously you don't want me dead, God, right? Of course, right? In other words, God, even though you commanded me to stand for you in Israel, even though you miraculously fed me and protected me for three years, even though I saw your power on top of Mount Carmel, even though I saw you resurrect a young boy from the dead, even though thousands of people turned back to you on Mount Carmel, I didn't think you could handle Jezebel. She's a tough bride, Lord. You know that, right? So I ran away here to save my life, and obviously that was a wise decision because you don't want me dead, right? He doesn't confess his sin. He's busy with lots of reasons and excuses for his behavior, and God is not interested in any of our excuses about sin. His sin was very great, by the way. He failed to trust and obey God. I want you to think about this. He ran away at the absolute crucial time when his presence could have been pivotal in the life of Israel. He had a whole several thousand people who were brand new followers of God. He, he could have eradicated the 
Baal worship in Israel. If he had stayed on the job, God may have used him to overthrow Ahab and Elijah, Ahab and Jezebel and Baal at that point in time. I want you to think about this. If Israel had turned back to God wholesale at this point, they might not have gone into the captivity and been exiled forever by Assyria 130 years later. What you do or fail to do matters, sometimes for generations. Now, God doesn't try to reason with Elijah, doesn't try and persuade him, doesn't confront his excuses. Just like Job, God knows that what Elijah needs is a direct encounter with God himself. Let's look at verse 11. So God said, quote, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. Verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, quote, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Have you heard that before? Here's the principle. God wants his people to hear his voice and then follow him. God wants his people to hear his voice and then follow him. What did Jesus say in John 10, 27? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they demonstrate that by following me, right? So God commands Elijah, get out of the cave, and he's going to give Elijah another demonstration of his power. He sends a wind so strong that it tore Mount Sinai apart. It says it broke boulders in pieces, which means it probably is some level of a hurricane that's moving rocks around. Pretty frightening. God next sends an earthquake that shakes the mountain like a rag doll. And lastly, God sends a great fire that consumes everything else that's left. Now, all three of those are spectacular demonstrations of the power of God, just like he saw on Mount Carmel. What is utterly interesting is it says, quote, the Lord was not in the earthquake, the wind, or the fire. And after that very strong, visible manifestation of God's power, Elijah hears God's voice, and it's, quote, the sound of a gentle blowing. I think the old KJV says, a still, small voice, a calm, quiet, whispering voice. Have you noticed that sometimes God shouts, he shouted to Job out of a tornado. Job had his fist in the air at that point in time, and his arrogance needed to experience God's power to bring him to the point of repentance and humility. Elijah was depressed, discouraged, and he needed a gentle word from God for healing and direction. Sometimes, as a matter of fact, I would argue all the time, you have to be quiet to hear his whisper. Psalm 62, 1 says what? My soul waits in silence for God only. Which means I'm quiet because I want to hear what he has to say. 
Not what some pastor has to say, not what some televangelist. I want to listen to God. You who have been here long enough understand that we don't teach from any book but this book. We don't do pablum digested by some other author. I'm not saying they're not good. But we are commanded to open this book so we can hear what God says. There is no substitute for hearing from the Lord himself. That's what the psalmist is saying, and that's what God wants for Elijah. Remember Mary, sister of Martha, they're sisters, and Jesus is coming over for a meal, and Martha's doing what? By the way, I like Martha. I, I'm, I'm, I, I like being busy. I like being productive. I look at Martha, and I'm going, man, she's industrious. I'm a big fan of industrious. Interesting. She's busy working. Mary is sitting in the living room with Jesus and doing nothing except escuche. She's listening. And Jesus said, Martha, 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 you're busy running around doing all this other stuff. Mary has chosen the good part, which means being quiet and listening. We Americans, we Westerners, have this thing about always have to be going and doing. I think many, many times God wants to speak to us far more than we want to listen to him because we think being quiet and doing nothing is a waste of time. Martha thought Mary was wasting her time. I mean, she's just sitting on her blessed assurances that helped me in the kitchen. What's, what's wrong with this picture, right? So we think having a conversation with God involves what? I tell him what I want him to do, and when I get done talking to him, I leave. I mean, we've prayed, Right? I mean, I told him what I wanted him to know. What else is there for me to do? But isn't conversation a two-way street? Do you make any time in that prayer life to listen to what God has to say back to you? Two-way. Sometimes you just need to be quiet. So Elijah thought that God was going to use his great power to turn Israel back from idol worship. And by the way, we're still impressed with all the external trappings of success. We like churches with big auditoriums that are filled with people. We like moving music. We like powerful preaching. We love dramatic testimonies. We like lots of conversions. Have you ever noticed that most of the time God speaks to the human heart in a still, small voice? Quite often it's at 2 a.m. when you can't sleep. Sometimes he speaks to us from a sickbed. Sometimes he speaks to us when our circumstances are so oppositional or so hard and there's no solution. Sometimes he speaks from the mouth of one of your children or grandchildren. And they go, blah, 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 blah. That was God's word to you right there if you got it. Right? Lord says, that's for you. Do what I said. God usually works behind the scenes. No drama. Just everyday life. And when he heard God's voice, it says Elijah covered his face with his mantle. He knew from Moses, by the way, that no one can look at God and live. And God asked him the question, the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if God repeats the same question to you a second time, you can safely conclude that your first answer was not satisfactory. Right? So you need to rethink your response. Now, Elijah is so filled with himself that he repeats the same thing he said word for word, which means he has learned nothing from the earth, wind, and fire that he just saw. He got no insight from that demonstration. 
or else he didn't think God heard him the first time. He said, I need to tell him again because God didn't hear me. And we do that oftentimes in prayer. We, we tell God, we ask him the same thing five times because we're not convinced he heard us the first time. So we have to persuade him to do the right thing, right? No. The prophets of Baal prayed to Baal for six hours. Elijah prayed a prayer that's four sentences long, lasted less than a minute. You are not heard because of your vain repetitions. Clearly, God is telling Elijah, you have gone AWOL. You have sinned by going where I did not command you to go, and you abandoned the position I called you to fill. And the good news is, failure does not have to be final. Let's go to verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meraholah you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all in these that have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. Here's the principle. When we return to God, he restores us and recommissions us for the work he still has for us to do. When we return to God, he restores us and recommissions us for the work he still has to do. It is enormously sobering and actually terrifying to think that one action that you do or fail to do can severely impair, if not permanently destroy, your usefulness as God's servant. Not as his child, you will never lose your salvation. You are always his child. If you are truly saved, you are always saved. But your usefulness is God's servant. Think about Moses. Moses was faithful for almost 120 years. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years leading Israel. And at the very end of his ministry, God said, speak to the rock. And Moses said, shall we bring water for this rock out of you, you ungrateful pigs? And he, well, he didn't use the word pigs. He struck the rock in anger and self-pride, and God sent water, and God said, you failed to treat me as holy in the sight of Israel. You're not going in the promised land. One error. He misrepresented God to the people. David, greatest king Israel had, the gold standard for all kings, committed adultery. Did God forgive him? Of course, read Psalm 51. However, the consequences of that brought disaster on himself and his family from age 50 to 70. The last 20 years of his life were a catastrophe. Saul disobeyed God. He offered a sacrifice that only the priests were to offer. He abrogated his role as king, and he said, I'm king, I can also be priest. I'm going to offer sacrifices to God, even though God said only the priest can do that. And God said, I'm setting you aside as king. I'm going to anoint somebody who will do my will. Now, Elijah's recommissioned. There's hope, but his role's reduced. God's now going to use other people along with him to exterminate Baal worship in Israel. So God, God commanded Elijah to anoint. To anoint means to declare God's commissioning on three different people. He is to anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Aram, by the way, is known as Syria. They were north and east of Israel. Hazel, this Hazel, we're going to study more about him in a few weeks. He murders Ben-Hadad, the current king of Syria, 
suffocates him and takes his place as king. And he will invade northern Israel and massacre them and their children as judgment for their Baal worship. He's also going to anoint Jehu, king over Israel. Jehu, will also study, is a captain in the army of the northern kingdom. And God's going to use Jehu to destroy all the prophets of Baal left in Israel. God's also going to use Jehu to exterminate the descendants of Ahab. Every male descendant is going to be exterminated, which means, by the way, that Ahab and Jezebel's rule is coming to an end. And it's going to be terminated with extreme prejudice, as they say, because of his refusal to repent. And lastly, Elijah is to anoint Elisha to be his assistant and successor. Elisha will be his understudy and his companion and will minister to him and with him. So Elijah is not going to function as a solo uh, minister anymore. Let's go to verse 19. So Elijah departed from there, the mountain, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed over him and threw his mantle over him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, quote, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done for you? So he, Elisha, returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with their implements of the oxen and gave them to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Here's the principle. Following God means leaving your old life behind. Following God means leaving your old life behind. By the way, the name Elisha means my God is salvation. Now, it's pretty obvious that God had already called Elisha to follow Elijah. We know that God's been working in Elisha's heart. Elijah was simply announcing that call to Elisha. Elisha was a farmer. In Israel, it's, it, the family farm is in the Jordan River Valley. It's about halfway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee in the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's a mighty long hike from Horeb up to there. And he had 12 pairs of oxen. Now, in case you don't know, oxen were the tractors of that era. So if you have 12 large tractors today, we would call you a large, prosperous farmer. 12 yoke of oxen and the servants required to handle them means there was substantial wealth in this family. He's not a gentleman farmer. He's plowing with the 12th. I mean, he's actually out there working. Very, very successful, very substantial. And Elijah comes and he throws his mantle over the shoulders of Elisha. Now, when you have a prophet's mantle and you throw that over someone's shoulders, it indicates that the power and authority of that prophetic office are now being transferred or being passed to that person. So it was a sign of succession. You were being called to follow that prophet, serve them, and learn from them. And we know that God's been working in Elisha's heart because he immediately leaves the oxen, runs after Elijah, and says, can I tell my mother and father goodbye? He says, I went, I kissed my mother and father goodbye. It was a lot more than just saying goodbye to his immediate family. It's saying goodbye to his whole way of life. Whoop, saying goodbye to the mic. Here we go, right? He was now going to be an itinerant prophet on the road with Elijah. And Elijah says, what have I done for you? Which means, I didn't call you to be a prophet. God did. Your response to this call is your response to God, not to me. This is not a human call. This is a divine call. You need to know what God is telling you to do. 
And that's really applicable to you and I. Have you, if you've ever needed to know what to do, it's always wise to ask for advice. But it's extremely important to be careful who you have ask advice for. If you talk to a fool, you will get what? Foolish advice, right? At the end of the day, all that matters is that you know what God's counsel is. So Elijah's saying, don't look to me for your call. I'm not calling you. I'm announcing God's call to you. You have to work that out between you and the Lord. In the same way, you and I simply have to know what God tells us to do. So he took the pair of oxen, the 12th pair, sacrificed and boiled their flesh. He had a celebration, a goodbye party, I guess. So he was saying, I am leaving farming forever. I'm following Elijah. Through a feast, said his goodbyes, followed Elijah next chapter of his life. So Elisha is going to get a new chapter in the book of his life, and Elijah's getting a new chapter in the book of his life. Elijah's not going to work alone anymore. He's now got to mentor somebody. Remember, when Jesus called the 12 disciples, he simply went to them and said, follow me. Two words, follow me. In order to do that, the Gospels tell us that, quote, the disciples left everything and followed him. When Jesus says, follow me, he means leave your old way of life, the way you used to live under the authority of Satan's sin and temptation. Leave that life behind. Instead of us following our own passions and plans, we are now committed to follow God's plan for our life. God's plan for your life, by the way, is not necessarily a destination. It's a person. It's a relationship. It's knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing God through Christ is eternal life. Now, I don't know whether God's asking you to leave your jobs, leave your homes. He may want you to stay right where you are. That's not the point. That's external. The key is, are you willing to do what he says? Are you willing to go where he calls? Are you willing to talk to who he wants to talk to? Are you willing to do whatever he commands you to do because he's God? See, Jesus said in the great prayer of John 17, this is eternal life that what? They, us disciples, may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Pastor Brian spoke this morning about Ecclesiastes and, and, and the gist is very simple. Inside the creation, there is no ultimate meaning. If you're trying to find purpose, meaning, value inside the created order, you're barking up the wrong tree. The only meaning for anything inside the creation lies in its relationship with that which lies outside the creation, which is who? The creator. Meaning and purpose and value is inextricably bound with our relationship with God, who is our creator who lives outside this created order, and we have a culture that is trying to chase meaning of stuff inside the created order, and we were never designed to find satisfaction there, right? Sometimes our lives remind us of a chapter book. Ever read a chapter book? You know, turn the pages, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Here's something that's real obvious. To get to chapter two, what do you have to do? you have to turn the page and close chapter 1. If you want to stay on the last page of chapter 1, here's news. You never get to chapter 2, right? So to open the next chapter of our book, God often closes the current chapter, and we don't like that. 
You know why? We like what's familiar. Even if it's really bad, at least it's familiar, right? You don't have to exercise faith with the familiar. God says, you want to please me? Exercise faith. If you don't turn the pages, you can't move forward in the story. So God's beginning a new chapter in both Elijah's and Elisha's life, and he has to close the current chapter for that to happen. God is in the process of opening and closing chapters in our lives as well. Is that not true? Some of you are going, Lord, I'm uh, not sure I want you to turn the page because I don't know what's on the other side. Here's the good news. He does because he wrote the book, right? And he's got good for you. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, Jeremiah 29, 11. The big question is, are we willing to follow the Lord wherever he leads? Elijah said, you want me to go anoint Elisha? I will. You want me? He followed, and that's the call for us today where we are. Let's review, and then we'll do prayer and praise. First, discouragement and depression can distort our perception of what is true. And most of us struggle with that, so that's where good counsel, lots of scripture reading and prayer can help us discern what is real and what is not real. Number two, God knows what we need and he gives us exactly what we need when we need it. So when God gives you something, understand that he has purpose behind that. You might pray for understanding as opposed to prayer for changing it. By the way, I'm not a fan of pain, just personal experience. So I'm not saying don't pray that the pain will stop. I'm a big fan of pain stopping. But above all else, if you're going through pain, that's the tuition. Don't neglect the lesson that God wants to teach you through that experience. Number three, God never accepts our excuses for sin. Don't bother trying to excuse your sin. He's not going to listen. But he welcomes confession and repentance. That's restoration. Number four, God wants his people to hear his voice and then follow him, which means we spend enough time with him to understand his voice. We know his voice so we can follow it. When we return to God in repentance and restoration, we turn back to him. He restores us and recommissions us for the work he still has for us to do. If you're breathing, God has work for you to do today. I don't care what your past has been. I don't care what your sin has been. I don't care what your neglect has been. If you're breathing, God has work for you to do. You have purpose on this planet. The Lord will show you, ask him. And lastly, following God means leaving your old life behind. You cannot follow the Lord and hang on to your old sinful life at the same time. You've got to make a decision. Okay, thank you so much for your attention. Uh, next week, we'll continue to pick up the parable in 1 Kings, so please read ahead. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.